All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Oilers Nation Radio, presented by the Nation Network. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 21 of Oilers Nation Radio. Today is a big day for all of us. We are very, very excited. It is the first time that we've had a special guest of this magnitude. You are going to know him from his 490 games played with the Edmonton Oilers, 695 games overall in his NHL career. Welcome, Thank you very much for your time, Mr. George LaRock. Thank you, guys. Thanks for inviting me. How you been doing, George? You keeping busy? Yeah, yeah, pretty busy. Doing a lot of things since I retired. And, uh, and it's awesome because I'm hyperactive and I love to uh, move around. What, do you, what are you getting up to these days? What are you working on? Is there anything in particular that's occupying your time right now? Well, um, you know, I've, uh, I have my own radio show in Montreal five days a week. I own a vegan restaurant in Montreal, a clothing company made with recycled plastic. I'm a part owner of Rice Kombucha. I own my own energy drink company. I'm a public speaker. I do uh, public speaking all around the world. I'm a bestseller author. I, I wrote my own autobiography in French and English. And, uh, you know, I, I it's, it's getting sold all over the place. So, yeah, I do a lot of things. Uh, I own also a card store. Uh, memorabilia, uh, hockey cards, uh, football, basketball, I call me all four major sports uh, also. Sports. So uh, because of all that stuff, it keeps me uh, pretty busy and having lots of fun. So just a few things on the go, George. Yeah, a few things. <laughs> just, just like you guys, just like you guys. Well, hey, we try. We're uh, we're excited to have you, and, and we yeah, we're, uh, we're over the moon. This is, uh, uh, you know, Cam here has said... The, Many times, you're his favorite player of all time. Yes, it's true. The first ever jersey that I bought as a child was a George LaRock jersey. I, uh, you signed it for me when I was nine years old, and it's a child's extra large, and I can still fit into it, and I still wear it to games <laughs> at the age of 25. <laughs> that's awesome. That, man, that's awesome. And my God, do I don't fit, do I don't fit in anything when I was 25. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So, George, we... Uh, I mean, I know you you follow the league quite heavily, and and I know you know that you know it, it's tough times right now in Edmonton. Uh, what are you What are you trying to? Or if we if we ask you to try and make sense of the situation going on right now, what would you say to to the to the Oilers fans listening? Well, the first thing I would say is that I feel really, really, really bad uh, to the city, to the fans, because Edmonton is. 
the best place to play in the NHL. And one of the reasons is because of the fan support, how loud that they are, how passionate that they are. And it's just amazing. And I know that ever since 2006, there have been a lot of many dark years for Edmonton. And, uh, you know, every year winning the first uh, draft overall and not making the playoff was hard. And when the Oilers finally uh, got McDavid, which he is the best player in the world, you would think that those 10 years drought without making the playoff were over. Because with Connor and, and Joy Saddle, you have the top two centers in the NHL, top one and two. And it does not make sense that this team uh, made missed the playoff last year and on the verge of missing it again this year. Um, it, it doesn't make sense when you look at that. because and, and the thing about that is there's nothing negative to say about Connor. Connor is unreal. But he on that team, it's like, uh, you know, he, he's alone. You know, Dry Saddle is doing a good job too, but Connor is like, he has to, uh, without him, there's no offense, there's nothing. And now teams are knowing that if we shut Connor down, then they're done. And that's what's so hard because now you look at what's missing on that team. There's so much piece of the puzzle missing with the Oilers that the next GM that comes in, where is he going to start with? Because the Oilers can be rebuilding. It doesn't make sense. They've been rebuilding for 10 years. So they have to win and they have to make the playoff now. And I don't think the fans would accept that the team, that the, that the team goes back on the rebuilding phase when they've been patient for so long. And now they have like unbelievable players on that team. It's just that there's some decision obviously that were made that didn't help them. But the biggest decision right now that has to be done is the GM that, that's going to come and is going to have to fi fix past mistake and make that team a contender because, you know, if you wait too long, um, you know, the parade's going to go and then, you know, the opportunity of winning is going to shrink and then they're going to lose a big chance of uh, winning the cup again. George, let's say, so the Oilers made... You know, they fired Peter Chiarelli um, the other day. Edmonton's without a general manager right now. Let's say you were hired to be the GM of the Oilers today. What steps would you take to turn this team from kind of flubbing around on the outside of the playoffs to turning them into the true contender they can be with Connor McDavid? Well, to be honest with you, the first thing I would have done, the selection of the coach. Um when I look at the talent on that team, what I, I would have picked for a coach, I would have picked somebody that is harder on guys. I would have picked some, someone like Michelle Tayan, Joel Quenville, like guys that are known to deal with superstars. Uh, you know, Tayan dealt with Crosby, with Malkin, and all those guys. And, 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 and yeah, he's a hard coach. Like, he's a coach that pressed the most as he can have his players. But when you do so, yeah, you, you can't, for, for three, four years, you're done because you, you're really hard on guys, but, but it works. And and Kenville, what he's done with Chicago and, and, and now deal with superstars, I think you needed somebody that experienced and not the old mentality. You needed somebody with the new mentality. And I was really surprised with the selection of, of Hitchcock to come in to coach. So the first thing I would do, because you look at, and net and defense and forward. And you have to be realistic when you say, I, I would do this and that and this. It starts with the coaching. It starts behind the bench. You know, because the mentality uh, on that team, it has to change. And you got to make guys accountable and, and with the way that they play and, and make them, like, make retribution. If, like, you look at the game against Detroit that game and when Charlie got, got, got fired. That, the team was dead. There was no energy. There was something missing. It, it, and I don't know what it, what it is. It, it's so sad to see this. And when you look at that, you're like, well, I'd, be a, I'd find a coach that if I wouldn't see the work ethic on the ice, I would sit in practice. And I'd be hard on guys. I made them work much harder. That's the first thing that I would do. I would start with a coach. Because in terms of saying that I would have this or this or this or this player, um, there's so many things uh, that, that needs to be assessed that there's no quick fix right now for that team other than uh, having the right coaching staff. 
George, were you surprised when the Oilers got rid of Todd McClellan in November? Was did, was that the right move at the time? Well, I was surprised that Todd McClellan was actually starting the year, you know, with, with the team. I said that for sure that Tommy was going to be gone. So, um, you know, and, and then after that start of the season, that they, they had no choice. But, you know, it's, it's just that coaching in the NHL, you know, average of three years, you know, you did three, four years, you did your time, and you stay longer if you really have a lot of success. And what that shows, with what Hitchcock is doing now, is that we really blame McClellan for what was going on with that team because it's the same problems that we're seeing right now. And, and there's one thing that comes to mind when I look at that is the year that the others made the playoff, which we thought it was going to be a streak that was going to go on for years and years. That year, Talbot has an unbelievable, he had an MVP year. And with Connor, he was the best player on the team. And after that year, he was never able to have the same year again. So what that shows is that the Talbot that we saw that year was the best that it could be. He was plateaued at that performance. But I don't think we'll never, ever see that again. So it's almost to the point that did what Talbot did the year that the Oilers made the playoff was the Oilers made the playoff because he played subpar. Is that the reason why they got him? Because you look at that. Do the Oilers need it? Unbelievable goalie to meet the playoff and they could make it with an average goalie. There's so many questions that have to be asked because it doesn't make sense. You know, nothing to say against Connor, nothing to say against uh, Jai Sado, but why are they not making it? And that's what doesn't make sense. One thing that gets talked about a lot in Edmonton right now, George, is the culture of the team. And I'm curious from somebody who's actually been in NHL dressing rooms. What does the culture of a team mean? Because I feel like in Edmonton, we've been talking about how this needed to change for 10 years now, since you were around. So I'm curious, what does culture in the dressing room mean? And how how can you improve that aspect of a team? Okay, well, that's a, that's a really good question. Because when you lost for so long, right? When you lose for such a long amount of time, the core of you guys, if all they've ever known was losing, how do you know what step to take to start winning? And that's the problem. This team has been losing for so long that everybody in the management to the players, that's what they've been around all this time. So you almost forget what it's like to be winning. And, and that's what's so hard because now it's like it's a standard that you never want to accept. But Edmonton, with, with the rich history that is there and the fans and what they've seen and the cops, the success that they've had, it's kind of like the Canadians. I put Edmonton in the same category, even though Canadians have more than the cops. The Oilers is a team that has to win. They, they're condemned to win. They're condemned to excellence because they've had the best player to ever play in, in the NHL as when Gretzky has an ambassador that is there. They have the best player of today's game, which is McDavid, and you have to win. It doesn't make sense not to win. So to, the only way that you change that mentality is most of the guys that were there in those 10 years that they weren't, that they weren't winning, a lot of them are gone. So, you know, and then, you know, you know and especially leaders, like, even though, you know, you would have wished the others that they would have got more in return for Taylor Alder, or Eberly, they were gone because they were part of that core group that were there during all those years that they've lost. So, you know, if you look at that, it's one aspect of it we could look at, but it still doesn't make sense that even with that, with the past of it, the presence of this is when you look at the team now, you say, okay, Connor's there, Josado's there, we have to build a team around those two guys, and there's just some big mistake that's been done. Like, like, and it's, I know it's always easy to say after, but just imagine, like, uh, Griffin Reinhardt that, that goes for a first pick, which turned out to be Barzell. If Barzell played that play with McDavid, how, like, how that team would be different. You know, there's so many different things like it that we could look at 
which after the fact is always easy to do so because GMs, you know, Charlie's not the only GM that, that, that made mistakes in the past. It's just that he made the collection of mistakes in the row that killed the others. And, you know, when people say he had a home run, he drafted McDavid. My grandmother's no hockey and she would have drafted him. So, yeah. You know, it's, not, it's not part of your resume to say you drafted McDavid because when you won the lottery, everybody knew that he was going first. But after that, let's look at what he's done to surround him, and that's where it fell. Because, you know, you look at who McDavid is playing with, man, um, he's alone. And, and that's the biggest problem. And the, the supporting cast around him is just not good enough. For me, I find it hard as an Oilers fan to watch this team and have so much of the roster that's unable to contribute on a day-to-day basis. Do you think that also affects kind of the mood around the team that a guy like Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl and Ryan Nugent Hopkins are having to carry so much of the load? It's just the fact that right now the team is, because of last year, it happens sometimes like you have a bad year and, and you didn't make it. But now that the way things are going right now, you could tell the guys at this stage. You could tell that the moral is not there. Like, they, right now, the mentality, like, at the All-Star game, is like, here we go again. And, and, and nothing is working. There's, I'm telling you, like, I, it's so hard to say. It doesn't even make sense when I look at that. Because I look at Calgary, and, and I hate Calgary. And it's showing me <laughs> yes, that they, they're the best team in the West. They're the best team in the West and the second best team in the NHL. Are you kidding me? I would take the others roster way before Calgary. But you know the biggest difference where when when you have a GM, how big a difference it makes? Trailing compared to Charlie, traded. Mikael Sarlin, Adam Park, and Dougie Hamilton. For who? Yeah. Like like, those two guys with Derek and Lynn, Lynn Holm and, and the other guys that came in with them. Unbelievable, like, the year that they were having and, and that trade, how oh, it changed the Cardinals playing. And the GM with the others, like, which is his job to be trade like this, to find guys to surround, to surround Connor and to surround Jay Saddle. That's the difference. The difference from last year, from the Flames, that's what it is. It's a good coach that came in. That is, in, is going to be nomination for the Jack Adams. Unfortunately for Peters, shocked what he did without uh, without uh, Tavares with the Islanders is, is nothing short of a miracle. So Shark's going to win it, and, and Peters going to be a runner up. But the GM picked him, which is a really good choice, and he made an unbelievable cha- uh, trade that changes teams. When uh, when you look at the Oilers, the trade that Charlie has made has not helped the Oilers with Connor. So. That's the only thing that I could really see in the immediate that, that shows me that trade is no good. And because of the result of it, guys are getting more discouraged. And, uh, and, and it's hard on them. And I know they want to win. You know, I don't want to criticize any guys in the dressing room because they do the best that they can. They don't want to be that situation. They see the captain working his, his butt off and they want to follow through and they want to be good. And, but, you know, we have to come to a point to look at the guys on the team and just realize and say, are they just good enough? Is our team is good enough right now to make the playoff? So it's not even a question of just will. It's a question of the, the, the players that you have, the way this team is built, and saying that, do we have the right goalie? Do we have the right defenseman pairs? Do we have the right forwards? Do we have good enough wingers? Are we fast enough? Are we utilizing you? Having guys utilizing uh, Connor's speed, playing with him, another combination of factor. What is the other's identity? What kind of team they are? Is that a team that takes you out of the building? Is that a team that is going to skate you, skate you out, and you won't be able to keep up? What's the, their identity right now? It's so hard to say because their identity is Connor McDavid, and it's nothing else. Yeah. With that in mind, George, you played here for a long time, and I'm curious about the pressure of playing in Edmonton. The reason that I think this is so important to ask you is because you played in Edmonton, which is the Oilers are everything, but you also played in Pittsburgh. You played in Montreal, where there's also pressure there. How does that 
how does it differ from playing in a town like Edmonton to maybe in when you were in Montreal? Are fans too hard on the Oilers here? Uh, to be honest with you, I don't think they're hard enough. In Montreal, they have the hardest times in the league. And it's known, it's known for that. And that's, when, that's the reason why there's many guys that refuse to play in Montreal because of that pressure. You play, you know, hockey market in Canada, they know their hockey. And because they know their hockey, fans know their hockey and they're passionate about it, hockey being national sport in Canada, um, they demand excellence. And they've had excellence before. The Canadians had excellence before, they won it again. Last time they won the Cup, 93, they won it again, and they're really demanding. When the team is winning, there's no, not a better place to be in Montreal. When it's losing, it's the worst place to be. In Edmonton, they're not as hard as they are in Montreal because, you know, you know, it's a bit different. Like, people, are, they've been more patient. Like, the fans aren't real in Edmonton, the fact that they've waited 10 years to make the playoff. In, in Montreal, do that now, and a bomb is going to blow up at the ring. There's no way people will be that patient for it. The fans in Montreal would never accept a team to be rebuilding, and the others have been rebuilding for 10 years. So when you look at that, the fact that while the team wasn't making the playoffs, they still put, put, like, put a ring together, put Rogers' place, um, and they knew it was going to be packed up. It shows you how passionate people are in Edmonton and how they are behind their team. So, but I just think that it is normal the fans to be demanding. They should be demanding because often fans are the ones putting pressure to management or to team to make some change because they want to win. You know, the fans are the reason why, um, you know, the last week's suite are, are sold out. Um, the tickets, the games are sold out. That the fans are the reason why all the guys, everybody makes so much money, why the owners make so much money, why the revenue in the league is growing so much. The fans is all. So the title, the fans are entitled if they're not happy to express their opinion because they're the ones paying for all of it. And it's just normal. If you're not happy, don't shut up. Say exactly what you think because your voice is important because with your voice is how you're going to have some change. And you never want to accept mediocrity. I played in Phoenix where sometimes you see no media after the game, where fans never said anything. And we were out of playoff in December, and it didn't matter. That was a terrible hockey market city to play at. But you look at places like Edmonton, um, Montreal, Pittsburgh, plays that people demand excellence. They want to win. It is just awesome. And it also forces you to push, to play harder. And also knowing that when you play hockey and fan knows the hockey, they know if you're cheating because they watch hockey and they kind of analyze you. They see if you're passionate and all that stuff. That's why I love that the fact that my 3 year career, I play with two Canadian teams because it makes it much more fun to play for Canadian team where people know their hockey and they're really behind the team as you play in a market where football is number one Baseball is second and hockey is, is getting the leftovers, uh, leftover third. So in 2006, obviously something that's in- incredibly important to all Oilers fans of this generation, you know, the biggest success we've seen in a long time. You guys kind of went from the years before that just being kind of, you know, that team that made the playoffs, got bounced in the first round or missed the playoffs by a little bit. What was it that happened in 2006 that allowed that group to just really find it and just plow through the rest Western Conference like you did? What was it like? Was it the coaching? Was it the influx of new players? Or was it the excitement of the fans? How did that all happen for you guys? Well, first of all, it was Chris Pranger. Uh, when the Oilers got Chris Pranger to a team, um, it changed the entire team because, you know, you get a defenseman that plays 20 minutes a game and comes in, it changed the entire team. Um, the power play, Special unit, it, 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 it was a boost to, to, to the others. What what they did, what it did, it changed everything. You, just, you look at Montreal this year, for example, the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, you start the year they were terrible. Weather was hurt, and when weather came in, the team totally changed. Now they're the third in the Atlantic. If one guy like that that you had into a team that was already good but always battling for a playoff spot at the end. 
having a guy like that that came in make the big difference. So it was trying to combine to the fact that, you know, the Oilers were really a tight group. We had the great mix of guys too. We had speed, we had talent, we had toughness, we had it all. And also we had Gator, we had a captain that would die. He was blocking shot, he was a warrior, he was just unreal. And when you saw a captain blocking shot like that, dying for the fuck like that, how could you not want to bleed and suffer to be on that team? It was a standard that nobody on that team accepted second measure. We were always playing for each other. We're a big family, and we wanted to suffer together and prove everybody wrong that we could do it, and we could make it, and we could win. And it's just that um, everybody was, did, was so good that year, did different things that, that changed momentum, that helped that team. And, and, and it was just awesome to gel together and to, uh, you know, to, to have this run. The only thing is, I try to forget about this run often because when you're a kid and you play hockey on the street and you dream of playing Game 7 in the Stanley Cup Final with your friend, you don't, that dream never changes into a nightmare and you lose that game. Usually you win it. And I remember still when they scored on an empty medal on Game 7 and it was over and we were fully dressed after the game, two hours after crying. Um, this is something that I will never forget because as good as it was in the city of Edmonton, um, I never thought after game six, when we won five nothing to even up the series, we were going to go to Carolina and, and lose game seven. And on top of that, the worst part of it that, that upset you even most is when I learned that when Carolina won the cup and they did the parade, people in the city complained because they said they were making too much noise during the parade on the street with the cup. <laughs> and the mayor promised that if they ever win the cup again, um, it would force them to celebrate at the rink and not on the street. When I heard that, I was like, are you kidding me? If the others would have won the cup in 2006, the parade to this day would still not be over. We would still on White Ave, still parading around with this cup. So yeah, when I look at that, it's just the wrong market city uh, won, obviously, won the cup that year. So George, I, you know, it's so, it's so fun to kind of to think back upon your career, especially with the Oilers, uh, I think you'll go down as as one of the the favorite Oilers of all time, especially around this table. But I think in just in general. But uh, I wanted to to see if you could remember one specific day on the calendar. Uh, it was February twenty first in the year two thousand. Does that ring any bells for you? Yeah, it's, it's a dream that uh, that I had when I played PlayStation and Nintendo when yes. I played hockey. I've always dreamed of scoring a hat-trick, but I would only do it in video games. So what I would do to have a hat-trick, I would actually create a George Rock that I would boost with 99 overall skills. <laughs> and then when I boost myself up, I'd have even a hard time doing a hat-trick in a video <laughs> game with a player that was boosted with 99. But, but that day, uh, that day I'll never forget it because we played the Kings and, and I also had a fight that game, so... I could baptize that having a George Rock hat trick is having a hat trick in a fight. Yes. And actually, Luchik has done it. He's done it with the others one. He did a hat trick in a fight one. So, anyway, what I'll never forget about it is we're playing Emerson, and, uh, and I remember I had two goals that game in a fight. And when there was about a minute left, uh, they pulled the goalie, and I remember the crowd chanting my name to go on for the empty matter. And, uh, Kevin went up to me and tapped me on the back and said, sorry, George, uh, can't put you out there. Because it was an important game to be first in the division. Or we had to win, and we put the defensive unit with Yanni Lunema and, and, and Todd Marchand, the defensive guys. And, and then I obviously understood. You know, like, I was just like, oh, man, that was my only chance in life to, uh, to have a hat trick. So, and Yanni Lunema scored an empty netter, and then, and then I put it down, there's 25 seconds left in the game, and, and I go on the ice, and I'm like, Okay, well, it put, put, I often finish the games when the game was out of hand in case if the other team wanted to, you know, when they're frustrated, they want to push you around. Well, maybe you won't do it because George is on the ice. So there's 25 seconds, I'm like, I got two goals, and I'm like, it's over, I won't get it. And I don't know how that happened, but we end up in their zone, and, and I got a pass from, from Boy Devereaux. And I don't know why I did that, because I tried it next day in practice, and I couldn't do it. Uh, Boy Devereaux 
when you give me that pass, I did a spin around my like Dennis Savard from the back to go. And I'm like, in my head, what am I doing? <laughs> like, when you say that, sometimes things happen in, in life that you don't understand why. I did that move that I could never do again. And and then I was in front of the goalie. I did a back in and I scored. And when I saw the puck going in the net, I'm telling you, if you would have clocked me the speed that I skated from that corner to, to our bench, maybe I would have beat Connor in that front <laughs> race. Well, George, That's the speed that I was going. I was so excited when I scored because I was excited not just because it was it was a hat trick, but it's because I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I, I blacked out. I couldn't believe that with that time that was gone, that we got the empty netter, that it actually did happen. So I went nuts. I, 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 I was still just, I remember after the game, two hours after doing interviews, talking about it. It was unreal. And Wayne called me and he's like, congrats, you only need 49 more to break my record. <laughs> so, so I laughed because I was like, yeah, uh, let's start by playing 49 more games in the NHL first. Because obviously, you never know how long your career is going to be. But when he said that to me, I was like, it was such an honor. But yeah, it's a day that I will never forget. And I'm glad that it happened in front of my fans. I still have the big sign that Tyron and me too at that time went out uh, in the parking lot and get the signs to sign, the fans to sign congrats and all that stuff. So I still have that, uh, that, that poster that, that I look at from, one to, from time to time to remember, uh, you know, that day and how awesome that it was. And, and this is something that I'm glad that I was able to share in front of, uh, of my fans. Looking back on it, do you ever just take a moment to like go back and watch the highlights? We were watching the highlights of that hat trick before we started this morning, and there were so many things that were just beautiful about it. The finish, like you said, that spin move to the backhand, unbelievable. We all had a laugh because there was a ref in the corner that called the goal, and you barreled out of the zone like a house on fire and almost took him out as well. The Rexall place was going bananas. And even the call from Rod Phillips was amazing. So I hope that every now and then you get a chance to go back and look at that. Actually, the only reason why I look at that uh, is because sometimes when, you know, and often when I, people talk to me about hockey all the time, right? And every time, from time to time, not every time, but from time to time when people ask me what's the best memory in the NHL, when I say scoring a hat trick, sometimes people, they don't believe me. <laughs> and when they don't, it is awesome because with technology today and everybody has iPhones or, or Android or whatever, you can go on YouTube and you can just show them. And every time I do, I have the rascal of boys with Marley Scott that, the under, that are talking about the hat trick with a great voice, which there was nobody as, nobody as good as Ross Phillips ever. Ross Phillips and Rick Janet are the best announcers ever that ever existed to describe hockey game. Rick Janet was in Buffalo. And Rod Phillips and anything. Right. And just, there's two descriptions of Rod Phillips that I love. My hot trick one and my fight with Rod Ray. If you ever have a chance to listen to it, just the way that he described the fight with Rod Ray, when you listen to it, it's just unbelievable. Rod Phillips is a legend in that department. I tell you what, George. So so along with working with Oilers Nation, I do run uh, hockeyfights.com for us here. And and I will share that that video today. You can You can share that with the masses. Uh, that fight with Rob Ray and speaking, I mean, of course, you know, you, you, uh, you were known as, as one of probably one of the greatest fighters of all time in the league. Is there, is there a guy that sticks out in your mind where you're just, you know, blown away by how tough he was and, and one of your favorite guys to kind of square up with in, in the league? Well, to start, I never had a favorite guy to square up with the league because as good as people say that I was, I hated it. This is so not me. I never thought I would be a fighter one. I always joke around, laugh around. And, and, you know, it was never in my mentality to be a fighter. It's just that I figured if I'm going to do something, I might as well be one of the best one at it. Because if you're better at it, you don't have to do it as much because guys will respect the team. Because guys will be like, eh, this two team in the NHL, George is playing on that team. Maybe I'll bother the other 29 team and I'll leave the others alone. You know, so... The thing is, when you have a guy that is tough, you don't have to fight as much because guys don't take liberty on your team, which is great. So in terms of looking up about guys, you know, like, obviously the scary guy, the scary guy to fight was Bugard, and I fought him so many times because the guy is six foot mil, six foot a thousand and a million pounds. So he, he was a monster. 
And and because of that, you, you know, you you always like, you know, I was six three to sixty, but you know, for a while I was the biggest guy in the league. And when Guga came, I was I looked like a midget beside him. It, it was like, oh my god, if this guy makes you look like a midget, like how tough is he? And on top of that, um, he loved it. Guga loved fighting, and he had a fighting camp in the summer and all that stuff. I was like, this guy is for real. And he wants to take my head off. Actually, <laughs> take my head off. So that he's pretty much the, the, the guy that I will read the most every time that I fought him. Like, back to me, every time I did, I always did good. And I never got hurt. And I always did good with him. But it never changed the fact that every time I was playing him, I could see him looking at me in the warm-ups, looking at me in the morning skate. And just with his eyes, you know, Oh, he was in chance. I knew that he was going to come and ask me. So I always had to be ready. And I remember um, the first time I fought him was actually in Minnesota. That was right after he broke uh, the dark face. And uh, everybody knew it was going to happen. Right? So I fought him, and, and, and I did really good on it. And I remember Mac T uh, showed that fight with all the guys. And he was telling the guys that, that he couldn't believe how calm that I was um, before it and stuff. And, and it's just that I was calm and, 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 you know, it was just a temper that I had, but I could never really fight mad because how could you constantly get mad when you fight because the guy didn't really do anything, but it was part of the job and, and I did as the best as I could, but people that knew me personally, they knew that it was surely not the type of person that I was. George, looking at the NHL now, uh, we're with, of course, with George LaRock Looking at the NHL now and how fights since you were in the league have decreased a little bit, where do you see fighting in the future of the NHL? Well, the thing with fighting is back in the day, um, fighting was always part of the game. Um, it's been there from the beginning. And I remember back in the days where Colbert would fight uh, against five people would show up two hours before the game because they were so exciting. There was electricity in the building. Now, Concussion is starting to be a problem in the NHL. We decided that the problem of it was because of fighting. And actually, the biggest problem because of the concussion is not because of fighting, because of the cheap shot, the elbows, and, and the fact that they took out the red line, the game is so much faster. And guys, they have more speed when they're hitting guys. So people think that by taking fighting out of the game, you'll take the concussion problem out of it, when actually, that's what the biggest problem is. And when you take fighting out, you take the only type of retribution that could be there if somebody does a cheap shot. So, because fighting is what put bread on the table for me, I will never talk against it, even though I didn't like it. I'm always going to defend it because fighting is the reason why I have a job. And fighting is the reason why some guys that play junior hockey hope that fighting stays so they could have a job. So, I will never, ever talk against it. As popular as it could be now when you retire to say, oh, Especially when I hear top guys that are retired that say, oh, okay, I'm done now. Okay, now I'm going to talk against fighting. You shouldn't be fighting in the NHL. Are you kidding me? You never said that when you were fighting. If somebody plays in the NHL and is a fighter, if you decide to retire after a year think that fighting is too, it shouldn't be in the game, and you get out of the game, then I'll listen to you. Everybody that, that used to fight that talks against fighting is everybody that does that when they're retired, when they're done. And when they made all their money, like made all their money fighting. So to me, it's hypocrite to do that. You did that job endorse it to the end because that's what you did for a living. Yes, I didn't like it. Yes, I did it for a living. That was my job. And yes, I hope it's safe for the guys that have the same talent that I that I have that needs fighting to stay to have a job. I hope it's safe for him also. Is it just as important now that guys on the ice are policing themselves a little bit? in addition to what the referees are doing? Or do you think that's faded out a little bit? Well, that faded out a bit because of the instigator rule. You know, before my time, just before the instigator rule was in, the policing was really bad because if you did a cheap shot, you didn't drop the glove, it was too bad, you're getting, you're getting beat up. But now, the instigator rule is protecting guys that does cheap shot because if, if you know, a leader does a cheap shot, you go to him, doesn't drop the glove, and you hit him in the face, a blows to the head, automatically you get a couple game suspension, and then you're done, and the guy's not going to fight. So cheap shot artist guys, uh, they could hide behind the referee, 
and they could uh, get away with uh, get away with lots of stuff. So. One thing I kind of wanted to dive into is I remember one of my favorite memories of you as a player was always kind of coming out towards the end of a game and really getting the crowd fired up. Like I I have vivid memories of being at games and the coach would throw Big George on the ice and he would go, you know, deep down and, you know, muck stuff up behind the net, be like like a disaster to deal with for the defenseman. Beyond fighting, since you've made it clear you you don't really like that kind of that kind of thing. What do you feel like your strongest attribute was as a hockey player? Like what was it that you brought to the table that made you really effective out there? Well, first thing was obviously physical play because I was giving a lot of room to, uh, to my teammates. I remember when I played in the kids' line with Jim Dodd and Boy Devro, who contributed lots to uh, you know we were having some points on the board. When you have a fourth line, because I think obviously the fourth line most of my career, but a fourth line that, that, that could be in the ascension zone, because I remember I, I, I was pretty good at protecting the puck, keeping the puck down low. If you have a fourth line that is not, uh, that doesn't hurt you defensively, and that could, you know, throw their body around, create some energy, and always in the ascension zone, it's an advantage. Because, yeah, because then you, you, you could rest the other lines at the same time. You don't have to. You ta- overtax them by playing with two or three lines. You use everybody to pull out more energy, and it makes a big difference. And I always took pride of the fact that when I played Edmonton, whether it was playoff time or not, um, I uh, you know I would always play. And even though there was no fighting in the playoff, my physical play was good enough that I would actually play in a playoff and contribute. And actually, there's even one year. I'll ask you guys a trivia question, okay? Yeah. Let's see who answers first. What year did I finish first? Scoring in a playoff with the Oilers. Was it a two thousand two three? It's against Dallas. I'm not sure if it's two thousand. It was the year. It was the year before yeah. the lockout against Dallas. I'm pretty sure. I think I remember that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe it's the one. But that would also explain why we uh, why we lost in the first round. If you're tough guy, <laughs> if the leader put out the team in the playoff, you know you didn't pass that first round. So I finished with four points, uh, with four points that year. And that was actually the year where when we got eliminated, I remember Kevin O did that speech to Mike Comrie and Mike Comrie wanted to get out of Edmonton after because that was the speech when he singularly uh, pointed out that he was responsible for this loss in the first round. And then it was the divorce between uh, Comrie and the Oilers. But yeah, that was the year that, uh, that I did so. And it's funny because when I do the trivia question sometimes, my radio show people are like uh, that's impossible but again <laughs> you know that's out there right so it's not like I could lie about it if you can't see it I was tied up in points with Sean Orkoff with, uh, with four fair enough so so George this, this podcast is brought to you by uh, Get Sauced and Sherwood Ford and the boys over at Sherwood Ford were so excited to hear you were coming on the podcast and they wanted to know uh, of all your teammates that you ever played with who was the loudest the chirpiest kind of guy on the team. Who was who was your loudest teammate you ever played with? The loudest teammate I've ever played with. Yeah, um, Jeremy Ro- Jeremy Ronick. Okay, by far. Jeremy Ronick was the life of a party. Um, you know, he uh, and actually, I would tell you myself because I'm pretty obnoxious and annoying, <laughs> uh, but I can't. So you ask me what's uh, what's the biggest. Because if you ask anybody that team that I played with, everybody would say, oh, George, he never stops. He's crazy. He's insane. He's so hyperactive. But in terms of looking at teammates, that would be, it was Ronick. Life of a party were really good friends when I played in Phoenix with him. And we're still really good friends today. George, how important is it to have a guy like yourself in the dressing room that kind of keeps things light when maybe there's a dark cloud hanging over or something like that? So again, how important is it to have a guy like how? A guy like yourself that can keep things light and kind of have some fun and joke around and keep the boys light on their toes. How important is that in the dressing room? There's always somebody like that in each team because the pressure of winning and, and everything that you're doing, you need to laugh sometimes. And the thing is, very special sport is pressure. You know, the job comes with pressure of winning, pressure from the media, pressure from the fans, pressure from the coaches, pressure from everywhere. If you don't perform, you're not going to play. And if you don't play, you're not going to be here. 
if you're not going to be here, you might not resign. You might be out of a job. And the call might be done. And that's the pressure. So because of that constant pressure that you have every single day, um, sometimes guys like that, and, and, and everything has a, a guy like that that makes guys laugh and, and you make fun of them sometimes and stuff like that. And it's important because it keeps things lighter sometimes. It, it, it takes the pressure off and you're laughing at time. And it's so important to have because, you know, it's, it, Alleviate that pressure that you feel every day in and out of, uh, of playing uh, during uh, a hockey season. Another thing I wanted to ask about, and this has really nothing to do with hockey a lot. One of the movies I love more than anything is Goon. So I was really excited when I got to see you in that movie. And and I'm just curious what that was, what that experience was like for you. What was it like to be in a major motion picture like Goon? Well, it, it, it was awesome because, first of all, I got to know really good that uh, Josh Faber and Sean William Scott. And just so you guys know, for that movie, Sean, uh, Josh Faber actually trained to learn how to skate. But Sean William Scott didn't so much. <laughs> so he had a double that did most of the skating when Josh Faber was doing most of it. When I was fighting with Sean William Scott, actually, because his balance was so bad, but my right hand, I was holding him up <laughs> because he would fall. Because he would actually fall. It was the hardest thing ever. And also, when we were fighting, like the, the, the fighting, like the shadow, when you fight like that in a movie, a fighting movie, when you throw a punch, you gotta be like a couple inches for the face so it looks real. Because it was always out of balance, sometimes it would punch me for real. <laughs> and, and the first time he surprised me because I didn't expect to get a real punch. And he was like, and then he laid on the ice right away after that punch. And, and he's like, Chase, please don't hit me, don't hit me, don't like that. <laughs> it's actually pretty funny. And I wasn't mad because I knew he meant to. But it's funny because I had to actually brace myself with him because he, uh, he would have, sometimes I would actually get a punch for real. When I fought the Schreiber, what was unreal with him was before we fought, he knew everything about me, about fighting and everything. He said, how is that? And he said, to be more intense with with the boss way, with his character, he actually watched a lot of my fight to actually know the mentality that he would have to have. But in my mind, I was like, well, maybe he studied the wrong guy because I didn't like it. And I was always laughing and smiling before I fight. So <laughs> I'm not sure if that was the right guy to study to do this because I don't think that that would typical, like, be if you have a tough guy to have it because, you know, I didn't like drinking, I didn't like partying, I didn't never do drugs, I never, and a lot of guys, did that, but did the job, they did this to take the anxiety out of their mind. And me, it was the opposite. It was mostly charity work that was getting me. Charity work was helping me with the fighting because every time I go to hospital and I see a kid that was fighting for their life, when I was fighting and I saw the anxiety, I would think back of that kid that I just visited and I'd be like, that kid would rather be on the ice fighting someone in the NHL than fighting for his own life. That's how I was able to fight the anxiety that I had every time I got into a fight. And, and then I was able to cope with that to just as tough as it was to realize that I was still in a lucky position to be on and, and not letting the anxiety take the best out of me. That's incredible. I think, I think that's a really important thing that you're ending off on that not enough people kind of recognize what it's all about. And I love hearing you have the charitable angle to that story as well. Uh, actually, actually, let me give you guys an, an anecdote in terms of, of, of charity work. And I think outside of hockey, the best thing that happens to me in Edmonton is talking about charity. This story is, is something that, 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 that is really important to share. And I think if people are listening to this, they can make a, this could make a difference. It would be awesome. It would be so different. Is, uh, I was really uh, involved with the uh, Falling Children Hospital in Edmonton when, when I was down there, when I was in Edmonton. And, and the nurse, they had my phone number, and, and when the kids wanted a visit, they would call me, and I would go to a kid. And I remember one time, I was in Calgary, and the nurse called me, and it's like, can you come back to Edmonton? Because the, there's this kid called Jordan, Jordan Klein. He has muscle dystrophy, and he has a couple hours to live. So I was in Calgary, and I remember, even though I just got in the vacation, and how much was I to go to vacation in Calgary? And actually, the real reason is, I was going there to see a girl because I would never go in an <laughs> for, for vacation. So I was going to see a girl. So not a vacation. Still going to Calgary. So I drove back to Edmonton to the Saudi hospital to go to Jordan Clem. 
And when I got there, Sammy was there because they had a couple hours to live. And when I got in that room, you know, the goal when you go see a kid that don't have much time left to live, what you have to do, you have to be kind of try to be listening, try to bring a smile to his face. So then they could remember that his last couple hours he was able to smile, he was happy. And, and you know, and, and you try to bring that joy before obviously the hard time would come. So I was there for a while and I chatted with them and I saw him and, and you know, I made him smile. And, and uh, yeah, I spent some time there and stuff. And when I left, I wish everybody, you know, like the strength and, uh, you know, my, my, my thoughts and, and all that stuff. And, and I met a couple of weeks later and I still have that article. Um, there's a letter that come out of the journal and it came out from, from the aunt of Jordan. And when I read that article, um, and the reason why I pick it, because everybody stuck on me and I said, did you read George, did you read that, did you read that? It was in the column section with fans that actually write stuff and sometimes they would keep some and, and publish them. She was talking about my visit when I went to see Jordan Clem about an angel that came to visit Jordan and how because of that visit, it got them a week longer. And I don't know if you know this, but there's no machine in the hospital that actually could do this. But she said that because of the emotional boost that Jordan got when I got to visit him, it got him a week longer. And obviously, I'm no god or anything like that. I was a fighter that pushed a park for a living. But at that time, I realized how important it was to work, how important it was to visit children and I realized how big the impact you could have with kids because a single visit like that did that boost. After I saw that, I did as much charity work that I could because I was so thankful about the fact that God gave me a chance to play in the NHL. What was I doing in return? One of the sons that was sick, if I had that effect on him, how many effects on how many kids can I have? So after that, it changed my life. And everywhere I've ever been, I've always utilize hospital visits everywhere I've ever played. In Montreal, when I was there, I had a, I had a charity person assigned to me with a schedule that would do stuff four or five times a week. I remember when I was playing in Edmonton, they actually have to put a rule to stop doing charity work when playoff time comes. They were telling me to slow down because they were saying that I was doing too much. And in my mind, I was never doing enough because I wanted to make a difference because that day, what I was able to do with a single visit, when I read, I wanted to add that impact every single day of my life. And and that's why also, when the earthquake happened in Haiti, I went back there and I helped rebuild the great Southern Hospital in Haiti. That's why today I'm a spokesperson for the China, Shriners Hospital, and I do so much with kids. Kids are a future of tomorrow, and hockey puts you in the platform when you could do stuff like this. And those are the things that I'll never forget and my career, because this is much more important than a fight that I did that got you to entertain people that watch a fight while they're sitting on the car drinking beer and eating chips. That was real life situation. And that's the thing that I've done in my career that I'm, in, that I'm the most proud of than any games or any fight or anything else that I might have done in the world of hockey. Well, that's an incredible story, George, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. And just from everybody here at the table and everybody in Edmonton, I want to say thanks for everything that you've done in this community. Even after you left the Oilers, the fact that you're still as engaged in Edmonton as you are is pretty incredible. And I think that it's pretty special for people to get to see you as often as they do. And I also want to tell everybody that's listening to this podcast to go check out georgelarock.com and find out everything that George is up to georgelarock.com that has all his business works, that has all his charity works. It's got everything he's got going on on there. So George, I want to say thank you from all of us for your time. It's been very, very generous to spend an hour with us here this morning. And I just want to end off on one with one last question. And I'm hoping for a good answer. Do you think the Edmonton Oilers can make the playoffs this season? Yeah, of course they could. Because they're only three points behind the, the last spot. But when they look at that, uh, you know, they're not that far off. So a couple of the games and things are, things are, things could go right, like could go in the right direction. The only thing, though, that's going to be really important is that I know that even though there's no GM right now and Gretzky is a, is a GM by Antrim, I think that they need a move. They need something right now to, to change the energy in that dressing room. And that next move is going to be really important because I think the next trade that they're going to make is going to dictate if you have to know that I make the playoffs. 
I do not want to believe in my heart that they're going to make the playoffs two years in a row. It doesn't make sense. It's impossible. I think they're going to pull it through. They're going to find a way to do so. And uh, they're going to have a really, really strong, uh, strong, uh, like, uh, like, uh, strong couple games right after the All-Star game. It's really important. They know what's at stake right now. And often when you, you, you fire the GM, it changed something in the dressing room. And I know that. And I know a lot of guys in that dressing room. And, they, and believe me, they want to be there. They want to be there. They want to win with the others. And they're proud of it. And I know that they're going to find a way this year because I just can't imagine them missing him again. And I think that they're going to find a way. Well, Big George, uh, we can't say thank you enough for coming on and you know instilling a little bit of faith and hope back into this uh, fan base. And uh, you know, hopefully we'll talk to you soon, buddy. Anytime, guys. You have my number. Thanks for having me. That was awesome. Perfect. Thank you very much, George. You're welcome, guys. All right. Bye-bye. Fuck. What an episode. Feeling emotional right now. I want to thank our friends at Sherwood Ford, the giant. I want to thank our friends at Get Sauce for making that possible. That is probably going to be one of the best days that I can remember. That was a hell of a conversation, boys. And Jay, you were sitting in in the office the whole time. You were just kind of fly on the wall. I'm curious what you thought of that. You know, yeah, exactly. Fly on the wall. People always say, I wish it could be a fly on the wall. I got to sit on the couch and sit back and listen to just George LaRock hold court and just get me so goddamn excited to be an Oilers fan. Like, what a human being this guy is and what an Edmontonian first and foremost. Like just it was it was uh, it was honestly you boys did such a good job. It was so good to just sit back, have you guys ask the right questions, and have George just spit hot fire. He made but, it he made it so easy on us because the guy's just just full of passion about life. Like one thing that really resonated with me is every time he talked about anything from his career, there was so much detail and and memory. Like when he talked about his hat trick, he knew who the line mates were, he knew the date, he knew everything. It's like this guy had so much appreciation and had such a good time playing. And just like enjoys life so much that it just it it's infectious. And speaking to to what you said there about him just being a great human, that that talk about that child in in the hospital where he came back from his vacation to spend a little bit of time with him because he thought he only had hours to live. That's just I mean, and for for a guy that was you know that's that's twenty years ago, that's eighteen years ago now, and he's he still remembers it like it was yesterday, and that and that fed his fuel to be a a guy that was a, a charity flag bearer for the rest of his rest of his time and continues to this day. I think it's pretty special how, you know, he hasn't been an oiler for a long time now. However, he still has such an emotional attachment to the city. He has an emotional attachment to oiler fans. I felt like when we were asking him about what's going on with the team that he was hurting just like we were. And I think that was pretty special to hear that a guy who's been through it, a guy who's been in the room, been in the building, has all these thoughts and feelings about what's going on right now. I just thought that was incredible to listen to. Still hates Calgary, which is just amazing. I love that, man. Shits on Calgary. Oh, respect. And I love how he... He wants Oilers fans and us to like turn up yes. the volume. Yeah, here we I'm are. Like, being... Wow, because we're just like the happy-go-lucky people. We want to put the pressure, but not too much. He's like, no, yeah. you need more. And he's saying that as a fan and as a player. Yeah, and here we are being told as the fan base that we're toxic and we're we're too mean to the players. And George is just like, no, amp it up to eleven, boys. We got to go harder on we, these guys. Yeah, we gotta, you know, we gotta do right by this guy. We gotta get him involved more uh, where we can because it's just stuff like that that like just reinvigorates the community right like just to hear him say that it's like yeah no like we are right like keep doing it like, like keep cheering keep be louder be more supportive be more upset just be more passionate that just like i said like i'm i had to jump grab the mic and come in on this even though i'm just barging in like just because like i'm just so goddamn excited from just hearing what he had to say shout out to chris for missing this one yeah good yeah, day for christmas <laughs> Chris just, just Chris was just like, yeah, I'm just gonna. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't tell him who we were having on the podcast. I'm gonna go for a sandwich instead. Like I was just like, since we we scheduled this guest, I just been like over the moon. I was like, here we go. Well, we've spent, you know, I think the last two days at the office preparing for this and trying to put questions down and taking some questions out, and there was stuff that we didn't really get a chance to get to. But based on that interview. How could we not talk to him again and just try and reach out all the time to see what he thinks? I'd love to talk to him right now. I want to talk to him for like six hours. Yeah, he. I. I feel like if we had kept going, George would have kept going. He. He told us right before, and I. You know, I kind of said like, we only want to take up a little bit of your time, George. Like, let us know if you got. He's like, nope, nope, no problem. You guys talk to me for however long you want. Well, let's back. Yeah, let's back it up. We were our original plan for this 
was to come in and maybe fill 30 minutes and hope that we had enough questions and we knew enough shit <laughs> and that we had our ducks in a row to fill 30 minutes. And then as I'm looking at the clock, as Jared's recording, we just flew past it and it didn't, it felt like a blink. You know, when you, you blink and you wake up two hours later, it kind of felt like that with George because I was just so locked into his stories, locked into his descriptions of when he remembers the little spin move. And he's like thinking, I don't know. I don't know if I could pull this off. And then he goes backhand for the, uh, the hat trick and then and burns he, out. And he shouts out boy Devereaux. Yeah. Like, how does he remember the guy uh, that passed the puck to him? He named teammates on everything. It just shows who the guy was like, that guy was a good teammate. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Like that guy, obviously great memory, obviously, but like so respectful and appreciative of his teammates. Yep. And obviously his job was to protect these guys. And so it's just amazing to hear just like him, like the, those connections that were had. And the biggest thing for me, you know, as an Oilers fan who's, you know, emotionally affected at the moment with what's going on, like George LaRocque drinking our Kool-Aid or all of our Kool-Aids in terms of like being a fan base of hope will never die, saying the Oilers still have a chance, saying only like, ugh, just like I want to run through a wall right now. This is this is the interview that Oilers fans, myself included, needed. Yeah, it's it is what it is, and you know, I mean, we can we can sit here and kind of strum on about how great this was for for hours, I think. But like just going around the horn, bag milk. What was your favorite moment from this interview? It's hard to pick one, man. Yeah, I think that having his description of what the team was like in two thousand and six, and how they all came together, and how they played for each other, and how. They may not have had certain pieces, but they knew they had a guy like Pronger there who was the anchor. So if you translate that to today, we have Connor, who's our anchor. Now they need to play for each other and get each other, get the pieces around him that can make it work. And I thought that was really cool to hear and how much that meant to him and how much he still hates that loss. Like when he talked about losing game seven in Carolina, it was just like it brought back the flood of emotions because I remember where I was. I remember where I was watching that game. I was with some buddies and, you know, leaving and upset and tears in the eyes and whatever. And as a counterpoint to that, when he describes the jubilation of scoring that hat trick, it was just incredible. We had the idea of throwing out the date. We had the idea just be like, all right, if we throw this date out, I wonder if he'll pick it up. And if he didn't, we were going to jump in and be like, this is what happened. But not only did he know the date when you asked Dan, <laughs> he went into one of the most vivid descriptions of a hat trick that I think I could ever have heard. Yeah. And I love that. I could sit around and listen to him tell stories all day. Yeah, it, Good stories, bad stories, whatever. Genuine happiness there. What about you, Jay? Favorite moment? Well, like, like, like I said, he touched on so many things. Um, and, you know, we're all going to have our take and we don't want to overlap. But for me, I just like... Good guy, but like what a good Edmontonian and what a respect he has for Oilers nation for the fan community. Like to hear that come out of a player's mouth was just like so amazing for me to hear. Uh, so that for me was like the big take, which is like, you know, the respect he had, he, he knows we're listening. He knows we're cheering. He knows, and he feels it and embraces it. So that was for me by far my biggest takeaway. Coom, your favorite moment. Yeah. I think I touched on it already earlier, but all just like his, the depth of his memory. Like I really, I really got excited when he when he dove into talking about 2006 and talked about um, like Jason Smith and he referred to him as Gator and everything. He said Jason Smith would die for you and it fired you up. And then George Larock had me fired up by osmosis. It was so good. So we have an Oilers Nation radio podcast first. Jared has stepped out from behind the soundboard. Long time listener, first time uh, caller. Oh, yeah. Jared would like, to, would like to let us know what his favorite moment was. I love the fact that uh, in video games, George will make himself <laughs> and pump himself up to 99. And he's still score the Because if, if I was a professional athlete, I would totally do that. 100%. 100%. I think for me, it was just, just from, a, from a business standpoint, hearing him kind of talk about fights and how you know, necessarily he didn't, he didn't enjoy it. He knew it was a part of his life and, and a part of his career was to be the best at, at being a fighter. But for him to kind of, kind of take some people to the woodshed on on speaking out against hockey fights was interesting. Yeah, I thought was, that was interesting too. I mean, that's how he made a living. Yeah, but he was also very appreciative and respectful of that living. Yep, and he's aware, and he's aware that there's guys right now that are grinding it out in the ECHL, grinding it out in the AHL, just trying to get that chance, and they're sitting now and and worried that that fighting might be leaving the game, and then therefore their skill set will not be needed anymore. So. 
Yeah. Pretty special day, boys. Unreal. Pretty special day. Um, this was, you know, I want to I want to thank Dan for kind of reaching out to him and organizing that. And I want to thank the the Beach Towels for playing us in. Jared is finding some local bands lately. We're giving shout outs to local bands. Thanks to the Beach Towels for leading us in. Thanks to George for giving us an hour of his time. Thank you to Sherwood Ford, the giant, for hooking us up with this opportunity. Thank you to Get Sauced for hooking us up. GetSauced.com at Sherwood Ford on Twitter, at Sherwood Ford underscore the giant on Instagram. Follow them, follow Get Sauced. Thanks to everybody for listening and send us your feedback. If you listen to this, we want to hear about it. Send us your favorite moments at ON Radio Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And a huge thanks goes out to George The Rock for joining us. And also, stay tuned because we've got more guests coming. Best Shout out wishes. to Damien. Best wishes. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.